over a decade of uninterrupted growth and low interest rates. So people have short memories, they forget. These companies are realizing you really can't cut your way to prosperity. In the first 100 days, do you really see, do they really walk the walk and, and talk the talk? High quality feedback is a lever for change and growth. Some of the leaders in place today, this is the first time they're going through something that is of a significant challenge that's not growth related. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast series produced by PEI Group in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. This season, we're exploring how GPs can best prepare for massive disruption at each point of the deal cycle. And today, we're looking at the best practices in developing that first 100-day plan that will stand up to whatever the market throws at it. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Kotecki. I reject your premise. Wait, what are you talking about? It's that old quote from Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Or my favorite, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Okay, well, first of all, I love that quote. It's like my favorite. Second of all, you're in a mood. My day is great, actually. I'm just saying that we shouldn't go promising our listeners that there's some indestructible plan out there. But... Okay, I'm listening. There are ways to vet those best laid plans and at least predict where that punch might be headed. They might even be able to duck in time. Or hit back? I think we've reached the limit of this particular metaphor. But when we spoke to folks on this, it became evident that there was one clear priority in any 100-day plan. Okay, what is it? If we tell them now, they won't listen to the rest of the episode. We'll get there, but first things first. As much as any 100-day plan is standard operating procedure for GPs, it's important to recall why they're as crucial as they are. Here's Adam Jenkins, the Managing Director and Head of Portfolio Operations at Blackstone. There's a lot of statistical evidence I think we've collected over time on our own portfolio and going back and basically backtesting you know, how investment cases were structured and what actually happened. The upshot of which basically is that achieving your year one financial targets, just humdrum, revenue EBITDA, you know, cash earnings, FCF, what have you, is a super predictive corollary of ultimate investment success, i.e. achieving, overachieving, or underachieving the value creation plan. If a business misses its first year targets, it can be quite difficult to get back on plan. And if it overexceeds them, that's a very, very positive signal that it's going to be a good investment. And by the way, I think this isn't unique to private equity. I think public investors in public IPOs, they also recognize this. Businesses typically get punished by the market if they miss earnings estimates out of the gate. It undermines management credibility. It's sort of a negative signal. We focus a lot of effort and attention on really making sure the company is resourced to achieve its year one objectives. And we don't just kind of set things going and then abdicate responsibility. The stakes seem pretty high. Why do I get the feeling that given their importance, the best 100-day plans begin well before the deal closes? Tell Chase what he's won. Early is on time here. Let's hear from Barack Corral, a partner and managing director at Alex Partners, to explain. One of the things that we do when we engage with our clients, we use a pre-closed planning phase as a precursor to define what needs to be done at what period of time to ensure the value creation is maximized. Since there's so many moving parts, we tend to take a characterization or classification of the actions into three main buckets. One is what you call quick wins and no regret moves. These are the things that immediately on day one, you can start executing, like stop and spend on certain planned projects, uh, reducing the travel expenses or not filling open positions. So very tactical things that you can really execute on and start funding the journey for value creation. 
Then the second uh, batch of uh, priorities comes the shorter term initiatives with a significant value capture, like right sizing the organization, doing your typical spans and layers optimization, better negotiating with the suppliers. And the third bucket is under prioritizations further down the line. These are more kind of longer term investments that create a cost competitiveness, a resilience or a support for growth like looking into your cloud migration, offshoring, tech modernization, product portfolio optimization. Is that all they need to do? Amanda starts the clock at a different place. We think of the 100 days as the time to plan the plan. And that is really a time that's focused almost exclusively on alignment between the management teams, between our teams, between any other stakeholders in the business and the employees. And so that period is really spent helping the management teams understand how we think about value creation over the lifespan of this investment. And they're investors with us. We all do it together. And so helping management understand how we achieve value creation. And that comes to a very simple mechanic, you know, the EBITDA bridge, taking the EBITDA bridge over the course of the investment and explaining these are the five, six, seven blocks of major value creation that we're focused on. And we debate that in the first 100 days. So we don't necessarily assume that all the priorities are clear. You know, we'll use that time with management to iterate, to say, what would it take to prioritize this over that? Help them feel unconstrained in that process so we don't just jam them with the plan. Now, the exception to that is when you are doing a day one integration. If we're merging two companies and we have to actually get quick wins in, we have to get employees on a new payroll system, we have to get finance systems migrated off TSAs, that's a very different set of day 100-day priorities. And of course, we'll achieve all of those. Here's Ellen Nyhus, the CEO of Verdane's operational expert team, Elevate, who reiterates the need for close collaboration with the senior management team. I think if you enter into those conversations with an attitude of knowing better than they do, then, I mean, it will be very difficult to create trust. I think you really need to respect the fact that they have been using their time and energy and have had worrying times and really energetic, enthusiastic, happy times in this business uh, and uh, have the deepest respect for that. Because if you don't, then I think it's very difficult. A recurring theme was the need to really tailor these plans to the company in question. As much as standardization is a watchword, and many GPs boast that they've seen it all, that can court blind spots around the business. Here's Amanda Good again, cautioning against boilerplate plans. You've got to go back to the core DNA of the company and say, what is the core competitive differentiation of this company? So they can't be good at everything. They might be incredibly customer focused. They might be super innovative in R&D. They might be extremely performance driven, such that they hit every quarter, every time. But not all companies are good at everything. And so if you have the peril of spreadsheeting out a plan, and that happens either from a management team that hands you a plan that the bankers kind of help them too much with, or you have you know, private equity people putting it on a spreadsheet, from the day one, it's not going to be executable by this company. So Rob, is that the number one priority, tailoring these plans to the business at hand? Nope. But another vital element is KPIs. It's hard to gauge how any company is faring unless you define what you're actually measuring. Make sure that you have those critical KPIs set up. So that's the number one challenge. Secondly, setting the metrics is great, but also the targets is another area where you have a lot of discussions. So if you have a limited bandwidth and resources and capacity to push forward those metrics to the targets, then you really need to prioritize as we're talking about. 
which metrics should we be prioritizing to get the resources of the company in the best uh, way forward so that we can impact what we really want to do. Here's Amanda Good reminding us that it's not just about numbers and financials. It's about understanding the key activities today that will impact tomorrow's bottom line. So I think the most important thing is that we all understand that financial metrics are not the end goal of driving behavior and performance. That's sort of the output you get at the end of the month when you see how the financials were the month before. But really thinking about all the leading indicators of the business is one of the challenges we face. It's getting people to think about what are the metrics I'm seeing today that are going to impact those financial results tomorrow? So that's, you know, very simply put, top of the funnel, lead generation. How many contacts did your salespeople make this week? Thinking about what is customer satisfaction today? One of the challenges we face is not all companies understand their full business model and how today's activity affects tomorrow and where that linkage is. And that starts the top management team making sure that what they're articulating as the most important things that their team is driving really do have a, an indication and a link to driving performance. You know, that's a great point. There are so many factors contributing to, say, a given quarter's EBITDA. You can't really rely on that to tell the whole story. Everyone says measure what matters, but a lot of tasks matter to financial performance. Here's Barack Kiral stressing the need to tailor those KPIs and measure them to the business at hand. If you're in a growth trajectory, obviously looking into your consumer indexes, consumer satisfaction surveys, the number of leads you're getting should be the priority in terms of what you're frequently measuring. But if you're in a not a growth phase, but more of a let's get the business much more efficient, then you're looking to your financial indicators and you know your cost reductions you're getting from your suppliers or the way your talent, how efficient your talent is performing. Any discussion of KPIs has got to address data management. Technology can be a huge help here, but it's a tool, meaning it's only as capable as the people using it. Here's Amanda Good. You really very quickly can help companies if you give them the right resources, a bit of data science, which we have on our team, data analytics, introduce them to one or two vendors that can end-to-end build out a system of all the KPIs and information you need. And so you start with making sure that you understand inputs to outputs in the business. So we've got all of the right metrics that are driving tomorrow's behavior. And then you go to the more technical and you try to create a system, a linkage, a technology stack that actually drives that. And we feel very strongly that that's something we do in every company and every investment. Something to keep in mind is that it's important to maintain a view of the full data ecosystem. It's not just about collecting numbers, but about implementing a system and mindset that effectively leverages that data for actionable insights. Here's Ellen from Verdane. Data maturity is extremely important. And it's not only about having access to data and using the data. It's also about actually a change of mindset. Because just building a data warehouse and ensuring you have the right system portfolio and you're collecting that data won't be enough. I mean, the management team and the organization actually needs to think in terms of data, right? So I think I would like to add that point that change management and continuous follow-up and those type of processes, from my experience, at least then in our investments, that can be quite useful. And luckily, we have an expert team who's helping us ensure both that Verdain and our portfolio companies are in the forefront. Ellen also made a terrific point about keeping all those KPIs in perspective. You've perhaps heard of metric fatigue. I mean, one challenge that can be seen is often that you, when you have access to a lot of data, you actually end up 
measuring a lot of things and you're measuring too much. So I think one thing we often focus on is actually narrowing down. What are the key drivers of business performance here? Is there one single North Star metric that we should keep an eye on at all times? And the progress of that one metric will enable us to succeed or will not. So I think kind of narrowing down, prioritizing correctly uh, is important. So you don't end up having loads and loads of metric that don't in reality drive your business outcomes. So every value creation plan I have is on a page. So for every company we're invested in or have been invested in the last couple of years, the value creation plan is on a page. And that has mission, vision, values, key initiatives, EBITDA bridge, people, and key imperatives. Same exact thing, whether we're in Europe, we're in Asia, we're in North America, and it has to be on a page. And there are times in, in, in my very recent past, about three or four months ago, when I was working with a company, we ended up with 27 different initiatives across the page. So, you know, they said, well, you need another piece of paper. I said, that's not the rule. The rule is one page. I get it. Keep it simple. That sounds crucial. Is that the number one priority here then? Nope, but it's time to unveil it. Can we get a drum roll, please? People. People. Talent. Talent. People. Talents. People. The talent. People. Talent. People. Talent and people. We invest in companies, but more than anything, we invest in people. Without fail, everyone put talent as a singular focus in those first hundred days, making sure the right people are in the right positions, and that means the right people for the life of the investment. Here's Adam Jenkins. Everything begins and ends with having the right management team in place, an effective and value-added board in place, and frankly, holistically, you know, an entire organization that's really calibrated to the mission objectives underpinning the investment case, really from day one. And ideally, quite honestly, if you're doing your job right, diligence and validated, you know, well upstream of that signing to closing period. But using that 100 days to kind of get truth on where you need to maybe kind of backfill management roles that aren't yet filled understand kind of where the talent spikes and gaps potentially are, and ensuring that there's sort of mutuality and complementarity across that management and leadership team, I think is absolutely imperative. So we invest like an enormous amount of resources in getting that right. And again, something tells me that talent evaluation doesn't start on day one of that 100-day plan. There is this kind of transactional moment when the company and the management team and the deal team and the operating team are sort of at this fulcrum in which we've been through the catharsis of doing a transaction together. The partnership is fresh. Everybody is open-minded because there's like a reset point in which people take stock of maybe how they want to manage this new project together. And I just think that facilitates a little bit of a mental agility and open-mindedness and receptivity towards maybe different ways of working. Like, you know, stuff that might be perceived as bureaucracy down the road is interpreted more positively as well-intentioned and oriented towards value creation. So I think it's much easier day one to set expectations on these are the metrics we want to track. These are the kinds of information we ultimately need to help reinforce you know, our contributions to value creation from the company. And the sooner you do that, the easier it is to set everything up and go from there. Another theme was looking beyond senior management in terms of talent and attitude. To evaluate the talents, I think it's really important to get to know the key employees that you actually have access to during the DD process. Uh, we've also introduced an organization capability survey that we, in some cases, are able to distribute to the companies during the DD process, where we actually collect information from all the employees 
on a lot of indexes, not only engagement and engagement drivers, but also an index on strategic alignment in the organization. Uh, also, I find that the middle management often is, let's call it underutilized or underinvolved because communication is very important. But uh, I had a session with the CEO a couple of weeks ago where he was quite frustrated because he said, well, I'm communicating and communicating and communicating. And I still get the message from the employees that I'm not communicating enough. And very often when you see that tendency, it's not because he's not communicating enough. It's because of the lack of involvement, because you can say something a lot of times, but it won't stick in your mind unless somebody has actually sat down with you and spoken to you and asked you questions and involved you in those strategic discussions. Ellen makes a great point here about how important it is not to solely rely on a top-down communication strategy. Here, Amanda Good adds her emphasis. You cannot over-communicate in those first 100 days to individuals. You know, there's something happening maybe at the ivory tower of their company. They're hearing about this transaction that happened. There's been investment put behind it. But what does that mean for all the individuals all the way down the organizations that are coming in and doing their roles? And again, I use this industrial services company that we've invested in where we've had incredibly good alignment for the first 18 months period now. And a lot of that is about shop floor activity. So you have all these equipment centers all over the U.S. where people are coming in and doing a job quite far removed from you know, our headquarter business where we're speaking with a C-suite all of the time. And one of the things around communication, and I will give you know, full credit to our CEO, and this is the best practice we share across, is communicating on a weekly, on a monthly, on a quarterly basis about different things happening in the business. This, of course, raises the question, how do you evaluate that talent? Here's Barack Kural again. Do they have the growth mindset or do they have their value creation mindset in place to execute on things at the right time and in full? And, you know, one of the advantages of this seated as part of the, the value creation plan execution in the first 100 days, do you really see do they really walk the walk and, and talk the talk? <laughs> and, you know, an example I can give you in a recent client where we focused on a transformation the first 100 days. This is a medical devices company. The head of the supply chain uh, during the due diligence process was part of the team. It was really driven and ambitious about the, the value that could be generated, uh, you know, post-close by manufacturing footprint optimization and certain uh, vendor relationships to be kind of reset. And obviously, we put uh, him with the CEO as part of the work stream on the value creation for supply chain. But in the first couple of weeks, one thing we collectively realized is all those plans and ideas that, that were there, though they were really good and ambitious, they really didn't have too much meat on the bone, if you like. And uh, when we start digging deeper into how they can be executed in the time frame, we really did not believe a lot of traction could be get there. So we start kind of uh, thinking through, okay, is this the right person to lead the supply chain in, in a transformative state? So that was a really good way to put it into the test ride and see the discrepancies between what is being told and what actually could be done and led by the leader. And sometimes it's not about replacing anyone, but ensuring that everyone is on the same page. And that means making communication a key task in these early days. Here's good again. I think role clarity is very critical. And the CEOs say, you know, it's kind of like a new relationship. You know, well, let's just talk about what's my role. How are you going to contribute? What's the position we each play? 
And it's important to empower the management team and say, this is your business fundamentally. You're driving it. You're in the CEO seat or the CFO seat. So when it comes to decision-making, we want to empower you on 99% of your decisions. It's these 1% that we're here for, but you're driving this business. And if you get that wrong early on and you go too far into being too operational, First of all, you could break their business because we don't know how to operate their businesses for the most part. And second of all, it just creates a level of distrust early on. Let the management run the business and then be even clearer on the roles that everyone plays around the board table. Amanda's role at the board table is to guide, to advise, to strategize, to give lots of frameworks, templates, experience. Amanda's role is not to ever come in if this goes sideways and to run the business. And that's different in every PE fund. What's interesting is that the point about role clarity and communication gets to something quite concrete, actually, the governance structure. Here's Kiral with one of the most common mistakes in any 100-day plan. Number one is not having the right governance structure, be it a transformation management office or you know integration management office in place, because that plan has to be guardrailed and driven by a central function that connects all the pieces of the puzzle, right? So that kind of central governance structure is definitely needed. Lack of it will definitely create a huge amount of risks into the execution of the value creation plan. Second one is a full alignment across the board on what we're trying to solve for in the value creation, especially in the first 100 days. Obviously, get into the execution and the delivering value based on what the investment thesis is one thing. But one thing we should not forget is the business continuity, especially in the situations where you do a lot of integration, right? Where you either tuck in or partial integration. The last thing you want to do is a disruption to the business. Because if business is disrupted, your top line start going down or flattening. Forget about all the synergies that you plan for. You will never make up for that losses in the top line and the, the customer dissatisfaction and the employee dissatisfaction. So, um, and, and the third thing I would add is making sure that having a very open, flexible mindset in terms of the, the management uh, that you are bringing on board, giving them the benefit of doubt because every transaction creates a lot of anxiety. It could change the behaviors temporarily so they may not be operating at their best this naturally raises the question, how long do you give that CEO the benefit of the doubt? Maybe it gets back to that point of getting to know the team as soon as possible. Adam Jenkins makes the great point that by day one, a lot of dealmakers have a good feel for the talent involved. The way I think in practice, a lot of these deals play out both before signing, closing, and then afterwards as you get into the investment period is, you know, typically we will have been developing relationships with the management team in question for months as part of the diligence exercise, but possibly really for years before you get to this real transactional moment. And there's all sorts of different ways in which that happens organically and intentionally. It happens organically because part of our job as investors and operators is to be out there canvassing the market, understanding, you know, who is good, which management teams are good complementary fits with which opportunities so that there's like a pipeline of deals, of talent, and a sort of function for matching those sources and uses of value creation, so to speak, kind of when you get to a transaction. And if that flywheel effect is kind of running as it should, you don't come into a transaction and sort of meet everybody for the first time. These are people you've known for a long, long, long time, in some cases have grown up with. The point is that the experience of working very, very intensely with a small group of people in a tight and coordinated organization and being kind of in the nerve center of a lot of information and executive decisions that are being made in sort of rapid fire, 
does develop trust and it develops relationships pretty fast. And those relationships tend to be the crux of a successful 100-day plan. I don't know. I sense that there are some serious questions around how to best evaluate the team. There are, which is why we've devoted our next episode to them. So join us next time to discover how best to manage those human capital issues, which, as you might imagine, matter for the life of the transaction, not just the first 100 days. To make sure you get that episode as soon as it drops, subscribe to Spotlight wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also check us out at any of PEI Group's various titles online. I'm Chase Collum. And I'm Rob Kotecki. Goodbye for now.